Shalom, and welcome to Israel Policy Pod. I'm Neri Zilber, a journalist based in Tel Aviv and a policy advisor to Israel Policy Forum. Big news in Israel in recent days, Benjamin Netanyahu is likely heading to a plea bargain deal with the Attorney General over his ongoing corruption trial. There is no other way to say it. This could be a legal and political earthquake in the making with far-reaching implications for Netanyahu's own political future, the Israeli justice system, and even the staying power of the current Israeli government. No more and no less. To help us make sense of this looming development, we have on this week's episode the perfect guest, Anshel Pfeffer, the senior correspondent and columnist at Haaretz and the Israel correspondent for The Economist, and more importantly for our purposes, the author of a biography on Netanyahu titled Bibi, The Turbulent Life and Times of Benjamin Netanyahu. The Netanyahu story, if it was even possible, may have just gotten a bit more turbulent. Okay, Anshil, thanks for joining us this morning. Uh, I wanted to start here, given the big dramatic news in Israel over the past few days. You wrote the book about Bibi Netanyahu. Uh, were you personally surprised by the news of this plea deal that came down a few days ago that Bibi may actually agree to this moral turpitude clause, what's called in Hebrew, kalon, that will force his retirement from politics for the next seven years, ostensibly? Well, I'm not surprised by the fact that Netanyahu is willing to um, sign such a deal. He's, you know, It's a great deal for him. He gets out of this trial, which would, if it, if it continues, will drain his, both his financial resources and his personal time over the next few years. So this deal gets him out of the trial, no jail. There'll be a fine, but that fine that he'll have to pay will be probably considerably lower than his legal fees. So it, it's a great deal for Netanyahu. Right. We're talking about the, the calon, the moral turpitude, I'm not surprised that Netanyahu is prepared to sign some kind of um, uh, of sentence which includes that. But I think that he is already, and certainly after he signs it, will be doing everything he can to still remain involved in, in politics, even though there w- this will mean that there will be a certain time limit uh, to when to when he can once again run for public office. Right. We'll get into what Bibi may or may not do on the day after he may or may not sign this deal. Uh, but in terms of the timing, right, so this trial has been going on now since, officially since May of 2020. Uh, the indictment against him was officially uh, came down in November 2019, and the official investigation actually started in early 2017, right? So, in your sense, why why now? Why did BB actually uh, ostensibly agree to begin negotiations with the attorney general and the state prosecution over over a plea deal now? Well, the most important thing that's changed is that in the last seven months, he's no longer prime minister. So mm-hmm. the biggest token that he had to to bargain with, he doesn't have anymore. That's you know his him being him agreeing to resign. So. First of all, he, didn't, he never wanted to resign, and he also wanted to keep that for you know that for any later stage of bargaining. He no longer has that, and he doesn't have much of a prospect right now of returning to office in the near future. This government, the, the Bennett Lapid government, for all its many contra- in, internal contradictions and problems, it has pre- has proved so far 
to be resilient. They've, pa they've passed the state budget. They're more or less getting used to, you know, to, to, to being in power. And in this situation, Netanyahu has already got less to lose. He's no longer prime minister. So he, you know, he needs to barter with what he has. And we're at a stage in the trial where there still are a number of very damaging uh, testimonies to be heard. Two of the three state witnesses are still ha ha haven't yet testified. Hadass Klein was not a state witness, but she's a very key witness. She's, she's the personal assistant to Aaron Milchan. She was the person who conveyed uh, all those very expensive gifts to, to the Netanyahu family. And her testimony will be will be that would if if it's if it would be to if it would be heard would be very damaging publicly. So this is a good point for him to to, you know, to cut his losses and and try to get out of the trial. And then of course we have the Vichai Mendelblit issue. The Attorney General who, who who's resigning in a week and a half his his term is about to end, and Mendelblit is someone. Netanyahu believes he can, even though Mendeblit indicted him, I think he believes that he can make a deal with Mendeblit. He can pressure him and he can, he can try and browbeat him on, on various clauses of the deal. So for all, these, for all these reasons, this is now a good window of opportunity for Netanyahu to cut and sign a deal. Right. So Mendeblit, we should remember, uh, former cabinet secretary, to Netanyahu. Uh, he was appointed by Netanyahu to be attorney general. Uh, so I guess the theory is that if a deal is to be had, uh, you strike it with Mendelblit and not his uh, and not his successor, who might take a different a different approach. Even if in the next 10 days, from what we're speaking now, Mendelblit will no longer be attorney general. That doesn't mean there won't still be a deal on the table. There'll be an interim attorney general, uh, the, the state prosecutor, I mean, Iceman, who is involved in the talks now? Who I doubt that interim attorney general would want to take that upon himself, but who knows? And then there'll be a new attorney general, so there'll still be a deal to be made. But with Mendelblit in the chair, Netanyahu feels that this is someone he knows. You can try and uh, and make that deal, but you know, I, I just added, some people say you know he has to do it now with Mendelblit. Mm -hmm. That I, that's not necessarily the case because. At the end of the day, this this case takes a lot of resources, not just from not just from defendants, from Netanyahu and the other defendants, but also the the, the legal system, the entire legal system is very much invested in this case. They've spent years on it. And actually for many of those involved, ending it now would be a good outcome because if they manage to secure uh, some kind of commitment from Netanyahu to leave political life and uh, him uh, uh, accepting the fact that he did commit fraud and breach of trust in, in at least two of the cases, that you know, that's enough of an achievement to allow them to continue with their with their careers mm -hmm. and lives instead of investing two or three more years in this very complex and and controversial case. So let's delve into the other side of the equation: the attorney general, the state prosecution. Israel's legal authorities that uh, indicted and now are prosecuting Netanyahu. So you said, and I think rightfully, that this is a great deal for Bibi. 
no bribery charge, no jail time, you know, maybe a fine, but he was going to pay legal fees for the next coming years anyway. Uh, and, you know, yes, likely a moral turpitude clause that would see him uh, leave politics for seven years. But on the other side of the equation, uh, you've seen primarily uh, former Supreme Court Chief Justice Aaron Barak come out and say, look, uh, I'm in favor of a plea deal. He actually, Barak, mediated, at least initially, this deal. And now he's uh, going to the media and, and, for all intents and purposes, flacking for the deal, running PR for the deal. But Aaron Barak says, you know, it's a time to heal the nation uh, after several years of division. Uh, and you force Bibi to publicly admit guilt in court and, I guess, take responsibility. And this will only strengthen the judicial system. Uh, should we believe Aaron Barak? Is this really what's going on in terms of the Attorney General's calculations, do you think? Well, Aaron Barak is an 85-year-old, um, you know, former president of, of the Supreme Court, former Attorney General. For many people, he personifies the Israeli legal system. Even now, he's been for 15 years, he's been in retirement. He still is to many people, you know, Mr. Law, but he, but and, also, and an icon, and an icon of the Israeli left. And uh, he wasn't, and is remains for many, for many on the Israeli left, an icon. Though there have been those on the left who have actually criticised him for being still too much on the side of the, of the establishment for many years. But at the end of the day, he is an individual. He is someone who various uh, emissaries from Netanyahu have been sitting with him for years. He's also been sitting for, you know, quietly with, with Netanyahu for years. And he feels mm -hmm. that he has some kind of personal duty to safeguard Israel's legal establishment. And he thinks that the trial, if it continues, will actually cause more damage to the legal establishment's uh, standing or status amongst Israeli, uh, amongst Israeli public. There are other colleagues of his, other former Supreme Court justices and, you know, senior law professors and other major figures in in the in the in that uh, in that world who are who are very much opposed to what barack has been saying over the last few days and who think that ending the, the trial at this point without bringing it to some kind of conclusion where the main testimonies are heard and right. the big questions are, are addressed is that's what has to be done and not end it here in a, in a convenient deal for finitania so you know, barack has has also drawn a lot of criticism from from what would what look what we would think of being his own you know, his own group his own constituency and yeah you know, let's you know let's not exaggerate Barack's standing he's no longer what it, he's no longer the you know, he still is an icon but he no longer has the kind of influence he has but he's like you said he's a very useful uh, almost PR flag <laughs> because he does give it some kind of respectability uh, I don't think this necessarily, uh, if, if it wasn't for Barack, we wouldn't be talking about the deal. I think we still would. But this is a, it's a very interesting anecdote, the way that Netanyahu has managed to enlist to his cause someone who many would think would be instinctively opposed to, to helping Netanyahu out. Right. Uh, and I also think we shouldn't discount the fact that uh, if any plea deal is appealed to the Supreme Court, that you know, Aaron Barak's uh, at least public weighing in on the issue may carry some weight. 
in terms of the current justices on the Supreme Court. Exactly. So uh, any so, so so any plea deal which if if a plea deal is signed, there will be various people who will, people and organizations who will then go to the to the high court and try and and, and try and get it struck and you know, try and get it overturned and since many of the justices currently sitting there including the current president Esther Hayut are protégés of Barack and see him as this you know, as this great source of wisdom then yeah it does it does seem that it'll be difficult for them to uh, uh, to overturn the plea deal but in general the high court rarely interferes with with plea, you know, with, with plea bargains if a plea bargain has been signed by you know, by both sides and then the the judges who are sitting in that trial in this case we're talking about the Jer- Jerusalem district court if they've mm-hmm. also agreed and, and sentenced according to that plea bargain then the high court rarely rarely gets involved we, we saw this just yesterday with uh, with the supreme court um be, uh, refusing to to overturn the plea bargain with Ayyaderi. so there, that's the way it usually is if if this deal is signed it probably will uh, stand though the judges not not in the supreme court but the actual judges of this trial may have something to say they may decide that we want for example the moral turpitude clause to be more clearly spelled out i mean they it's not it's not that the judges have to accept whatever the two sides sign but in general also judges don't want to to drag out cases for years and years and then have to write their very long rulings and then have those rulings uh, their verdicts be subjected to further appeals everybody almost everybody who's involved in this case will be quite happy to save themselves the next two or three years and get on doing other things right uh and we should say the Netanyahu defense side and the legal authorities on the other side. Uh, recent polling uh, of recent days, you know, the the majority of the Israeli public, both on the left and the right, interestingly, are against this plea deal. So, I mean, I, you know, we, we we both saw those polls. I think that uh, most of the public are not legal experts, so we're, you know, they're they're not really judging. This you know this deal on it, on its actual merits. You, know, you have uh, quite a visceral feeling on the right that Netanyahu should carry on and prove to everyone this is a witch hunt and so on. And you have a similar feeling on the left that, uh, or not just the left, but but the parts of the public which are opposed to Netanyahu, that no, he, the trial should carry on until he's convicted and sent to prison. So what you're seeing here really is the way. That a lot of Israelis are emotionally invested in this trial, but I don't think that they are really necessarily looking at the actual legal details. And you know, since we're all bystanders, you know, with the exception of those who are who are actually involved in in conducting this trial and, and you know in conducting defense or the or, or the or the prosecution, everyone else is a bystander here. And it's yeah, you know, what we're seeing in this poll where both majorities who are pro and anti-Netanyahu are against the deal is to be expected because you know that, that that's where the public emotions lie. Right, and it's been going on now for several years and both sides on the left and the right, pro-BB, anti-BB, uh, do have a lot emotionally invested in this trial, in these corruption cases. Um, on that issue, 
from your knowledge and understanding of of the man, uh, if a plea deal is signed, and the day after, do you expect BB or more likely his supporters and various mouthpieces to to actually accept the spirit of the deal, um, or will they, as we've already been hearing slightly in the recent days, put out a different story uh, that the plea deal, this bargain deal, was offered? Uh, because the prosecution's case was weak and falling apart, or alternatively that you know Netanyahu had no faith he'd get a fair trial in open court in Jerusalem. Uh, what do you think Bibi will do the day after he signs this deal? Well, you're talking about Netanyahu's supporters and you're talking about Netanyahu, and those are two separate entities. They're not the same thing. Okay. And you know, we've seen already in the last, you know, we talk, we're recording this on Tuesday, the, the the story first f- first broke, if I'm not mistaken, last Wednesday. So it's almost a week now. We've already seen, almost like you know, in the stages of grief and in, in um, <laughs> mourning, we've already seen you know, the, the, the 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 stages of rage and acceptance and so on. You know, we've seen we've been <laughs> evolving. We, you know, the first couple of days there was disbelief. This was coming from the the. Uh, the journalist who broke the story is Ben Kaspit, who is not mm-hmm. exactly a, 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 a Netanyahu fan. He's, he's actually very much hated by Netanyahu's fan base. So in the beginning, they 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 they, they didn't uh, discounted it. They, they, they didn't believe the report, or you know, they, they they said this is coming from Kaspit. This is coming from the prosecution because their case is weak. So therefore, they they want to say Netanyahu is is capitulating. And well, actually, they're the ones who who are at a disadvantage. And after that, when it transpired that that, that Kaspit's reporting had been accurate, and not only was there a plea bargain being discussed, but it was actually Netanyahu's side which had first uh, uh, approached the Attorney General for uh, for the deal. There was anger when there were people uh, people saying on social media. It's a quite influential. Uh, BB uh, mouthpieces, people who are usually seen as very much uh, following his line. There was anger there. They were saying, no, he has to carry on. And even if it means that he may sit in jail, he has to do this for us. He has to do this for truth. Yes, he has to continue the cause. And then Mm -hmm. I think over sort of a space of another couple of days after the weekend, we began hearing a different kind of approach saying, well, this is obviously unjust. Netanyahu is innocent. He's been the victim of a witch hunt, but the man is 72 years old. He's given his life for the country, and we can understand the fact that he wants to uh, end this ordeal now. It's still unjust. We won't believe this. There's no way that, that we're going to ex- accept that he did anything wrong. But if you know, if that's what you know, he's a he, he's a, a human being, and he can decide for himself if he wants to. Uh, uh, if he if he wants to abandon the case now, uh, so those are kind of like the, the evolution of the feeling of Netanyahu supporters. For Netanyahu himself, the motives have are and remain what they've always been. He wants to get out of this case. He wants to save as much as he can money from from his legal bills. He wants to be assured that he won't have to go to prison as his predecessor, uh, Olmert uh, did. He knows that 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 is. An option at the end, even though it seems still almost inconceivable that Netanyahu would one day go to Wing Ten in Marseille, the one, the wing that was especially prepared for mm-hmm. for incarcerating former prime ministers. Even the, you know, he knows that's a possibility, and if he continues with the trial, 
he could uh, spend his 80th birthday in prison. So I think that's something he wants to avoid, quite understandably. But on the other hand, he still wants to remain in a position where if he can't be prime minister, where he can still wield power from behind the scenes. And I think this is that's where we are right now. We're in the stage where Netanyahu is trying to still make the, make the moral turpitude clause one that he can somehow deal with. We, we, we reported in Haaretz on Sunday that his lawyers are already inquiring whether a moral turpitude clause which would force him to resign from the Knesset, therefore he would no longer be leader of the opposition, and he wouldn't be Likud's candidate to be prime minister in the next election, whether that means that he also has to resign from his uh, from his post as leader of Likud. Now, this right. is a situation that we, that we have, like there is in Poland, for example, where the, where the ruling party has a prime minister and a president from its... From, from, and, cabinet or its members of the party but the leader of the party Kaczynski has no official role but he sits in wherever he wherever he lives and he wields from their control over the party and I, I wouldn't discount that being the situation even if Netanyahu was no longer even the official leader of Likud he would still have he will still have massive amount of uh, of influence certainly the rank and file membership of Likud are firmly behind him. We saw that as recently as the primary against uh, Gidon Sao two years ago when Netanyahu won, won it by a landslide. Um, right. you know, of the Knesset faction, the 29 current Likud MKs, I'd say about half of them are firmly his supporters and will do almost whatever he said. Netanyahu's problem is that, the, is that small group, actually a growing group of, of, of challengers at the top of Likud, Mm-hmm. Netanyahu's problem with Likud is that there is a group of challengers. None of them are powerful enough to unseat him. You know, we've seen that time and again. Not uh, Yuli Edelstein, not uh, Israel Katz, Gilad Eltan, Tachi Negbi, Nir Barkat. None of these, none of these uh, potential challengers have the, you know, they have the, the support to unseat him. And that's why only Edelstein has so far uh, formally announced that he's a candidate. Everyone else is still using that formulation. We are going to run for the party leadership after Netanyahu. After, um, but even but even if we are in that mythical age of after Netanyahu, if that happens in a few months, when finally Netanyahu has resigned from the, as a Knesset member and has resigned as a Likud leader, if that happens, even then, none of these uh, of these challenges will have the power to go up against Netanyahu's machine. Mm-hmm. And that machine will not be dismantled, even if he's no longer the formal uh, Likud leader. He will still be the Likud leader in exile. He'll still have a hold over many, many of the party members and of, uh, and of at least a big chunk of the Knesset members. So to come and be the new Likud leader after Netanyahu, with Netanyahu still around, Will be a very difficult thing. There'll, there will be eventually a new leader, but I don't see that leader becoming, you know, being accepted, uh, being acclaimed as the real new leader of Likud. Netanyahu will remain the, the real leader for as long right. as he wants and probably for as long as he's still breathing. It really is a fascinating, fascinating question whether the moral turpitude clause actually applies to an outside Knesset role like Likud chairman whether they will actually try to force him to to step down as Likud 
chair to relinquish that post. Um, it's also, I think, a decision for the internal Likud court, such as it is, to decide. But even if he does step down, I mean, he will try and engineer the the election of of his successor and. What it, you know, what we can expect him to try and do is to put his support behind someone who is both a, just a caretaker, someone who makes it clear I'm here, but I'm I'm here for Netanyahu, and if whoever mm. finds the you know, whoever wants or or can make the way back after seven years or or whenever or whenever the the legal circumstances make it possible, you know, that's the kind of leader Netanyahu wants. He thought. Back in 1999, when he lost the election to El Barak after the end of his first of his very first term, you know, he mm-hmm. basically appointed Ariel Sharon as as the newly could leader, in the thought that Sharon is old and weak and discredited, and therefore he's just a he's just a caretaker. He's just someone who's holding the job until I come back. Little did Netanyahu know that Sharon had no intention whatsoever of relinquishing the leadership once he got it. But that's what, that was Netanyahu's miscalculation in 1999. This time he'll try and make extra double sure that that whoever uh, replaces him is, is just a caretaker and it's clear to everyone. And Netanyahu, at the age of 72, is much more powerful than Netanyahu was back in you know, 23 years ago when he lost because his hold of the party now is so much more stronger than it was then. None of the right. challenges of anything near his stature. Then there was still a group of you know, of big beasts and they could who could uh, replace him and did replace him. Sharon replaced him, and there was a whole liquid leadership basically keeping Netanyahu uh, out of the leader's office. And I think that that uh, that, that doesn't exist now. And Netanyahu will certainly take advantage of that. And the people are talking about near Barkatas being. The, the the front runner now to replace Netanyahu, Nir Barkat is the front runner now because, strangely enough, there are lots of polls coming going around saying that mm-hmm. he can get the most votes uh, as as leader. That other leaders, other potential leaders, will get less votes if they run as as Likud, uh, you know, as Likud's leader. But um, I'm skeptical about any of those polls. None of them, you know, none of them are relevant. Uh, until there, there, there is actually a real open race to, to succeed in Netanyahu. Nir Barkat, as we know, has enough money and has already the organization in place to basically be running a shadow campaign now. A lot of the polls are coming or being affected by my Barkat's campaign. So Netanyahu already certainly looks, you know, sees Barkat as, as the person he wants to beat. And the fact that Netanyahu... Uh, gave his his silent support to to, to a recent Knesset uh, law, uh, which uh, limits the, the amount of money that a candidate can use from from it, from their own personal mm-hmm. uh, sources uh, to run a campaign, is a very clear signal that Netanyahu does not does not want to see Nir Barakat uh, replacing him, and Nir Barakat for all his money and for all for all the organisation he already has in place. I doubt he can come up again. He can go up against the Netanyahu machine and win. Right. Uh, Nir Barkat, the former mayor of Jerusalem, but he himself has never served as a minister in national government. There's a reason for that. Netanyahu did not appoint him as a minister to any of his cabinets right. since Barkat came, mm-hmm. uh, came into the Knesset. And 
you got to ask yourself why why one of the more prominent Likud uh, uh, Knesset members was not appointed in Netanyahu's previous cabinet, and that's because Netanyahu sees him as as someone who who's threatening his preeminence in the party, and therefore he's he's cutting him down to size. Right, mowing the grass, as it were, to any would-be successors, even even if Netanyahu himself is uh, exiting the political stage, at least officially. Uh, just to sum up this legal aspect and this legal side, uh, if you were a betting man, Anshul, uh, do you think a plea deal will be agreed to, including the moral turpitude clause? Look, I don't know if it's going to happen in the next 10 days with Mendelblitz still, still in place, but the dynamics of of this with both sides wanting the deal mm-hmm. with the the court system and the prosecutorial uh, uh, service basically preferring in general to cut these deals because you know, it saves them so much time for, for having to conduct these very long and costly trials you know, the motivation is there on, on both sides both sides want this deal so i think that Despite the suspicion that there is on, on both sides as well, quite rightly, uh, I think the chances are that we will see such a deal. Netanyahu has certainly himself kind of has accepted the idea. Netanyahu still has obstacles to, 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 that, that we know of, mainly the fact that not all his family are in favor of this deal, and Netanyahu does take his family's opinions very seriously. Mm-hmm. But he seems to be, if not there, then almost there. The same is true of Mendel, but Mendel would really like to have this wrapped up by the by the time he leaves office. So I think that the chances are that this uh, this will be signed, but there are also significant uh, reasons why it may not be signed because that moral turpitude clause and, and how exactly it will apply to Netanyahu remain uh, uh, remain a problem for both sides. Both sides need to to get something out of this. Right. Uh, so we talked about the legal implications, this earthquake potentially of a plea deal uh, and the impact on Netanyahu's future and the future of the Likud, but it could also have reverberations uh, on national Israeli politics and specifically on the current Israeli government led by Naftali Bennett and Yari Lapid and its staying power, right? So last year, these disparate parties and factions all came together with the express goal of toppling Bibi and keeping him out of power which they successfully did. Uh, but if Bibi leaves, what is keeping them together in your mind? Well, that's a very good question. The first thing we should ask ourselves is, does the the main motive for, for forming this coalition, this very unorthodox, unwieldy you know, contradiction filled with its internal contradictions, you know, does, does, the, 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 does that motive have to be the motive that keeps them together once they're already in office? And the answer to that is not necessarily. The fact that Netanyahu uh, may no longer be constantly breathing down this government's uh, 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 back does not necessarily mean that they can't stay together without that. First of all, I think Netanyahu will still be there in many ways, and therefore mm. it's not like this motive has totally disappeared. The people will, you know, they, they will still... Uh, have this concern that if they can't stay together, then then some kind of uh, other coalition, which is controlled by Netanyahu from afar, will will, will come back in, and I think that that's something that that will still be very much in their minds. 
And besides that, I think that this this government, it's not just Netanyahu that brought them together. They each of the eight different parties in the coalition have you know, have have got things or, or still stand to get things from being in government, whether it's legislation and and funding for things that are important for them, especially in the case of Ram, whether it's the fact that they control uh, key ministries and. In, in another co in another coalition, another government, they may not even be in government, or they won't have those kind of, of ministries. And also, don't forget that these every minister in this government it has a lot more power than a minister in a normal government, because the prime minister, in, in our case, Naftali Bennett, mm. is the leader of a small party; he doesn't really have control over the other ministers. So, if you're if you're a member of this government, you stand a lot to lose. From uh, you know, from from it being from it being dissolved, and the real problem here is that for some of the elements in, in the coalition, especially on the right wing, there will be the feeling that with Netanyahu removed to some degree from the scene, they have more uh, options, and I think that 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 won't be it won't be good for the coalition. It'll It'll weaken the coalition somewhat, but I don't think that they really have those options because, you know, all the the, the vitriol, the the, the shouting, the, the cussing that we've been hearing over the last seven eight months from the opposition towards, especially towards the right wing members of this coalition, have mm-hmm. uh, obviously politics anything is possible, and people who were at each other's throats yesterday can tomorrow become bosom buddies, but. Especially it's, in Israeli politics, it's, it, politics everywhere, especially in Israel. But still, I don't see Dudi M. Salem and Galit Distalatabrian, who've spent the last seven months screaming at Ayelet Shaked and uh, and uh, Yom Tov Kalfon and all the other right wing members of this coalition. I don't see them bearing the hatchet overnight. There's a lot of uh, a lot has happened over the last seven months, and for the you know for for, for these. Uh, politicians who basically have the same positions almost in everything. They all belong to some nationalist right-wing camp, but they don't really have different views on any policy issues. Still, the the, the, the Netanyahu effect has been so strong that I don't think they'll be able to re you know, to, mer- to merge to you know, to reunite the moment Netanyahu uh, leaves. The fact that 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 a certain group of right-wing politicians. Joined with centrists and leftists and Islamists to to, to form an anti-Netanyahu coalition will not be forgotten uh, overnight. There will be a period in which you know, th- I think there'll be a lot of fluidity on the right wing in the post, if there is such a thing as a post-Netanyahu era. But you know, th- th- we'll see parties merging. We'll see splits uh, over the next months and years to come. But this fundamental chasm that has opened up in the right wing won't be closed so quickly. So that, I think, will keep this coalition uh, alive, at least for a few more months. The big question, and that's that was the big question, even if the if the trial uh, were, is to continue, is mm-hmm. whether this government can also uh, um, survive a transition in the prime minister. Can these right wing politicians stay in government when Yair Lapid becomes prime minister, that's going to be the big test. But that test is still uh, another well, another nineteen months ahead. So, right, I wouldn't uh, you know, I, 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 I can see this government at least, even with Netanyahu 
resigning. I can see this government still being around at least until that moment where where they have to rotate the prime ministers. Then, you know, a lot of things could uh, could go wrong. But I, I don't think this is the this you know Netanyahu leaving is the you know the the the, the nail in this government's coffin. So it's interesting. You're fairly optimistic, although cautiously optimistic. I might be a bit more pessimistic. Uh, I think, especially for the certain right-wing elements in this governing coalition, people like you know Ayelet Shaked, the uh, Interior Minister, and other backbenchers from Yamina, and especially Gidon Sar's New Hope Party. Uh, once they have an alternative on the right, you know, a Netanyahu-less uh, Likud, that Either they take a deal and try to form some alternative coalition government, or uh, it just destabilizes the current coalition to some extent that uh, you know certain certain parts of the coalition just basically leave, um, and then you might you might actually see uh, new elections triggered. Uh, so I might be a bit more pessimistic, but uh, but I agree. I don't think it'll happen the day after any plea deal is signed. That it'll still stumble along. But, but you have to remember something. I mean, the way governments are formed in Israel is that a government, you know, for a new government to come about, you need someone to form it. Now, when Netanyahu mm-hmm. has the picture, who is going to form this alternative government? So who will who will be the top spot, right? Not just who will be the top spot. Who will be doing the work? You need someone to do the heavy lifting of bringing the different parties of. Of a of a, of a, an alternative coalition together. So, yes, it's true that with Netanyahu gone, there is a certain mobility that some of the more right wing members of the current coalition would have. But you need someone to bring them in. You need someone to sign a deal with them. You need someone to give them a job. It's it's not, and and these things will be will be difficult because a they they currently have jobs in the new coalitions. So you have to offer them something, which mm-hmm. somehow can 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 be at least equal to that and you need to deal with the rest of the members of the opposition who who, who you'll need in your coalition so it's easy to think oh well Ayelet Shaked and other sim, uh, other like-minded right right wingers who we know are not happy in this coalition now they'll have um, um, uh, you know more of a motive to leave and to bring down this government but who is going to be forming a new government who's going to be doing what is a new government going to look like? Mm-hmm. And there, you know, Netanyahu couldn't form. Uh, Netanyahu, with all his political uh, uh, wizardry, couldn't form a government after four consecutive elections. Who do you see doing it now? Who do you see bringing together all these different parties and 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 and, and, and members of, of of a potential new right wing government? And don't forget, Netanyahu will be undermining, not, he won't just be undermining Naftali Bennett and Lapid now. He'll be undermining anybody in Likud who wants to prove that they, they can succeed where Netanyahu failed. So you know, Netanyahu is now going to be in a very interesting position, assuming he takes the deal, where he obviously wants to see Bennett and Lapid fall. But does he want to see another Likudnik succeed where he failed. So, I, you, know, the, 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 you know, nobody's thinking about uh, about that, about how Likud on the day after Netanyahu 
manages to to, to to form a new government. And you can make all kinds of you know arithmetic and say, okay, well, well now these parties who wouldn't sit with Bibi would be willing to sit in, in a liquid government because Bibi's not around anymore. But mm-hmm. Bibi is still around. Bibi is still, you know, he still has his loyalists there. You know, I, I think that that for him, the best thing would be actually for the, for this government to remain, but to be more and more dysfunctional, to be you know, to have these right wingers in there uh, and some of the left wingers as well, uh, you know, causing the government to fail in key votes, as, we, as as we've already been seeing. We saw just yesterday, on Monday, was it Monday night, when the yep. government failed to pass a new IDF draft bill because one merits member voted against that. I think Valentiniano is right on the best, uh, the best scenario. Having both the current government at a very in, in, in a rather dysfunctional state, but still having his only Kudniks not so successful themselves. Because you know, just just imagine if a new Likud leader were to emerge who can form a stable right wing government, can who can bridge the you know, can close that chasm, can bring back all those uh, right wingers. Who, who who wouldn't sit in in Netanyahu-led government? That would actually be proof to Likud that we don't need Netanyahu. Netanyahu doesn't want that kind of thing to happen. Right. You don't want to be uh, doesn't want anybody to overshadow his accomplishments of the past twelve years and to to vindicate a lot of his naysayers on the right that said, you know, look, for all his accomplishments, uh, he just can't actually win an election and form a government. Which which so. which is exactly the argument of Yuli Edelstein, who for the last who already four months ago. Announced that he wants to be the next Likud leader. That Netanyahu cannot form a government, and therefore, yeah, thank you very much, Bibi. But now it's time for a new leader. Now, if a newly Likud leader were to form a stable government, that would probably be the worst thing for Netanyahu because it would prove that Netanyahu no longer uh, is no longer necessary to the right wing. Uh, fascinating psychology of the man, uh, Anshel. Final question for you: Your Netanyahu biography came out in 2018, right? Yeah. So the question is, are you working on a revised paperback edition? Uh, and if you are, how will you know this potential plea bargain deal uh, impact Bibi's legacy and the overall Netanyahu story, if at all, do you think? Well, uh, there already is an updated version uh, in, 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 the, in the United Kingdom, which brings the story up to... Uh, up to the middle of 2020. Uh, obviously, a lot has happened since then. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it all depends, really, basically, on publishers whether they think there's that there's a market for yet another Netanyahu book. A lot of people have already bought the current book, and I don't think many people will will necessarily buy a second book just so, so they can have the updated edition. So that's not up to me. That's up to the various publishers in different countries. Who, mm-hmm. who published my book? Um, you know, if if it hap- if, if some if a publisher wants an updated version, I probably will write one. But that's not the main issue. The main the main issue really is when do we start assessing Netanyahu's legacy as part of history? And I think that it's difficult for both for his supporters to accept the fact that Netanyahu's role is over, if it is, and you know, to start beginning to look. You know, you know what he's done and and, and what his uh, his place in history is, and it's difficult, I think, for a lot of his uh, you know his critics and his opponents to accept the fact that whatever they think of the man, he has already become a significant figure in Israeli history. And 
as such, we will be assessing Netanyahu's legacy for years and for decades to come. He certainly, in my, to my mind, he's the second most important political figure in Israeli history by now, just because of the fact that that he's been more you know, more time than anyone else in office. When I say second, obviously the first Ben Gurion. Ben Gurion. Um, but um, our you know our assessment of Netanyahu's legacy is very much going to be based on what happens in the years to come. You know, Netanyahu's, at the end of the day, his biggest achievement is the fact that, and this is to quote one of his advisors in a recent interview, he killed the Palestinian issue. That's uh, who said that. Um, I think one of his advisors said that recently. And mm -hmm. uh, as you know, that is, you know, I think that's very true. Netanyahu, especially in the last year in office with the Abraham Accords, proved what he'd been saying for many, many years, going back you know, as uh, as early as his own, uh, you know, as his diplomatic career over 30 years ago, that Israel doesn't have to make a deal with the Palestinians in order to achieve peace and in order to gain a broader acceptance in the Arab world and in the world in general. Israel can brazen things out. It can, you know, can, can stay tough, not give anything to the Palestinians, and, and ultimately it will be accepted in the region as a partner, even though the Palestinian issue hasn't been solved. And that's, you know, we, we, we've seen that happening now with the, you know, with the deals with the Emirates and, and Bahrain and Morocco. And I think in, on a more quiet level with the Saudis and certainly with the Egyptians and the Jordanians, that as long as there's no massive uh, explosions with the Palestinians, they don't really, they don't really care for them and, they, and they're much more interested in doing business with Israel. Um, if that remains the case in the years and decades to come, and without the you know, putting the occasional flare up in Gaza aside, if that remains the case, I think a lot of people will say, "Well, Netanyahu had a point, and Netanyahu, you know, correctly read the historic trends." And uh, a lot of people, I think, will absolutely not the Palestinians and their supporters, but a lot of people will, I think, appreciate Netanyahu for having you know, for having done that. And this is not—I'm not talking here on a moral. Uh, level. I'm talking here just simply on a pragmatic, political and historic level. You know, people will say anything. Yeah, read correctly the fact that the Palestinian issue is no longer on the international agenda, and both the world and the and the Arab world are not interested in the Palestinians anymore. But if that doesn't happen, if the if the issue with the you know, if the conflict with the Palestinians flares up in a serious way again and becomes once again a focus for international attention, putting Israel in a very difficult spot. If that happens, I think people will say that Netanyahu was, you know, was a historic failure because he squandered this opportunity where Israel was at a position of strength mm -hmm. from, you know, in, in every aspect, as you know, military, uh, financially, from diplomatic. Israel, you know, Israel has been in the last few years really in a position of strength. He could have used that position to try and make, you know, try, try and go towards some kind of uh, resolution for the conflict. He didn't because he, he doesn't believe in it. Uh, if if the conflict flares up again in a in a massive way, uh, people will say that Netanyahu was a failure because he, you know, because he refused to try and and resolve the conflict and tr instead tried to, as his aide said, try to kill the conflict rather than solving it. Right. And, you know, he may be remembered as uh, not only the prime minister who squandered these many years, uh, not looking to at least resolve or attenuate the conflict, but that he paved the path inexorably to a one-state outcome.
and potentially the end of the Zionist project. Well, that's a bit ap- apocalyptic. I don't, I don't, I don't, uh, <laughs> I don't buy those uh, those scenarios. This has always been a one state play. I mean, always since 1967, we've, we've been living in a one state scenario. It's not. Uh, uh, but yeah, this is a whole different debate, right? Not about that's, Netanyahu. I don't think that if yeah, that that would be necessarily Netanyahu's legacy. That would be the legacy of every single prime minister since 1967. Um, Netanyahu certainly play has played a major role amongst those prime ministers. But just the you know, the question of whether Israel can continue to basically. As we as we call it now, to shrink the conflict, to ignore the conflict, just to put it on the back burner, and assume the rest of the world doesn't really care. Uh, if that is going to continue to be the case, I think Netanyahu will be seen by history as a very successful prime minister. If that's not the case, and if it uh, if the conflict blows up again, then uh, I think we'll all, we will all a lot of us will say that Netanyahu was a, was a great failure. There will always be Netanyahu supporters who will say that uh, if Netanyahu was around, this wouldn't be happening. But mm-hmm. and we're going to have uh, we're going to have I think I think decades in Israel, even beyond Netanyahu's lifetime. Whenever whenever he he departs from uh, you know from this world, and he's he, and he you know, he's the son of a of a man who lived to one hundred and two, so we can expect him to be around for a, for a long time. But even when he it, when he's no longer uh, a significant uh, uh, actual player in politics, his effect will be around for a long time. Well, there's going to be a lot of people who will remain loyal to Netanyahu, even if Netanyahu is no longer a candidate for, for leadership. Because he did, you know, he, he has symbolized, he has personified a certain approach um, that I don't see, uh, I don't see any other right-wing leader Achieving that, you know, that 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 stature in the foreseeable future, and in the same way that for many people you know, around Labour for many years, Ben Gurion had even after Ben Gurion left, his aura was still there. And we see, you know, in the same way that that Trump, even if Trump doesn't run mm-hmm. the presidency in the United States, that you know the Trump effect won't go away. Uh, I think the Netanyahu effect will be with with, with Israel for decades to come. So. BB might be gone, but Bibism uh, will remain. Yeah. Uh, Anshel, thank you so much for breaking all this down with us. Uh, great guest on a super important topic uh, and to be continued. Okay, that was Anshel Pfeffer with a really fascinating conversation about a very important topic. Before we sign off, I'd like to thank Jacob Gilman, who produces the podcast. And to all of you who support Israel Policy Forum's work, uh, including this podcast, you know who you are. And just remember to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Be safe out there. 